Turn with me, if you would, to Matthew's Gospel, where we left off a couple of weeks ago, skipping Palm Sunday and Resurrection Sunday. The last time we were in the book of Matthew, we almost finished chapter 8. We'll pick up there at verse 33 of chapter 8 this morning. So turn there with me and we'll proceed. Matthew chapter 8, verse 33. Remember that Jesus has delivered a demoniac from his demonic possession, casting the demons out of him. Before he had done that, the demons requested that he allow them to go into the herd of swine that was nearby, and he said, yes, go. And when they did go into the swine, the pigs just ran into the waters off the cliff and drowned. That was quite a spectacle for one of the writers of the gospel record says there were at least 2,000 pigs involved in that scene. Can you imagine the herd of pigs all rushing toward the water, jumping off the cliff into the water and dying there? Now, there's no real understanding that we can get from the Scriptures as to why Jesus allowed those demons to enter the pigs. A lot of speculation. I don't want to be here to speculate this morning. I just want to tell you that it did happen. It is a true story recorded in the three synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Now, Matthew doesn't give a lot of details about that. He gives just a very scarce amount of information. More is given by Mark and Luke. But before we Go to either of those. I want to uh, read verses 33 and 34 because it is the end of that story. The result of that miracle that he had just done is recorded here by Matthew in verse 33 where it says, And those who kept them, the pigs, fled. And they went away into the city, which would be the city Gadara, which is a few miles away from the shore of Galilee, where the most of these people resided. They fled and went away into the city and told everything, including what had happened to the demon-possessed man. And behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus. It seems logical that they would want to come out and see this miracle worker who delivered this demon-possessed man from that terrible experience that he had been suffering for so long. And, And the excitement from the herdsmen who came to tell them of the story. This man from from Capernaum has come across the Sea of Galilee and he's healed this demoniac. They've told him all this information, but they also said, and of course all the pigs are gone. And so when they saw him, they saw Jesus, they arrived... They begged him to depart from their region. Think about that. They were more interested, apparently, in their welfare, their business of raising pigs and having nothing to do with the Lord of Lords who delivered this poor man from such a terrible condition as he had been suffering in for so long. It tells us a lot about the mindset of certain individuals. Remember, we have been, over the last few weeks before our break from our expositional teachings, three weeks ago we were talking about the fact that Matthew gives us in chapter 8 especially some information that we wanted to observe. One of those things that we wanted to observe is that Jesus has power over Everything. And it tells us in verse 8, he has power over the leper, to cleanse the leper. In chapter 8 again, he tells us that he has power over the nature, because he comes to see. It tells us also that he has power over the demonic activity, as we just discussed. He took this situation of this poor man who was demon-possessed and delivered him. They should have realized that this one to whom they were speaking, get out from this area where we live, we don't want anything to do with you, they were rejecting him. And the implication is they chose not to follow Jesus. Also in chapter 8, I want to point out to you that we saw in a couple of different places that there were those who had wanted to follow Jesus. 
The first one was a rich young ruler who came to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus' response to that one was, Foxes have holes to, to sleep in. Birds have nests to sleep in. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And so Jesus challenged this individual, Are you sure you want to follow me? So it's, he challenges this individual about the commitment that is required when you make that statement, I want to follow Jesus, it does involve a full commitment to that which you have spoken. If it doesn't, then Jesus says, you may as well stay home. The second one was very similar. This one came to Jesus and said, I want to follow you, but first let me bury my father. And Jesus said, look, let the dead bury the dead. It seems like a harsh response from Jesus' point of view, though. It's basically saying, look, your father's not dead yet. What you're saying is, I'm not ready to go just now, but I'll, when it's convenient for me, I'll go ahead and follow you then. When I've earned my inheritance from my parents, then I'll go ahead and, and take this risk of following you. So it is a matter of full obedience. Did Jesus say that you can't follow me? No. In neither of those two cases did he say that. He said, if you do truly want to follow me, then you need to understand it involves full commitment and full obedience. Those are the requirements that Jesus has laid down for us through these messages that Matthew gives us in this gospel record. Here in this passage that we've just looked at, the demon has been cast out of this poor man, and actually Matthew says there were two of them. The other accounts say there was one that they actually talked to, apparently, and got the story from. I want you to turn with me to Luke's Gospel to finish that story before we move on in Matthew's Gospel. Luke gives that account of the same situation, the same circumstances, found in chapter 8 of the Gospel of Luke. Now, I'm not going to read the whole account. It begins at verse 26 of chapter, 20, uh, of chapter 8. But I'm going to pick up in Luke's account from where we just read out of Matthew's account. It says in verse 30, 31, And they begged him that he would not command them to go out into the abyss. This is the demons speaking. Now a herd of many swine was feeding there on the mountain. So they begged him that he would permit them to enter them, and he permitted them. Then the demons went out of the man and entered the swine, and the herd ran violently down the steep place into the lake and drowned. So Matthew and Luke are in total agreement with what had taken place with regard to the swine. In verse 34 it says, When those who fed them saw what would happen, they fled and told in the city, and in the country. They spread the news. Jesus of Nazareth has come, and you should see what has happened on the shores of the Galilee. Then they went out, verse 35 says, to see what had happened, and came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had departed, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. They also, who had seen it, told them by what means he who had been demon-possessed was healed. Then the whole multitude of the surrounding region of the Gadarenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. And he got into the boat and returned. So up to this point, Luke's account is pretty much identical to Matthew's. But now Luke adds something about the man that Matthew just doesn't record for us. And this is what he says in verse 38. Now the man from whom the demons had departed begged him that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away saying, Return to your own home or house and tell what great things God has done for you. And he went his way and proclaimed throughout the whole city what great things Jesus had done for him. Take note of what Luke is saying here. He's recorded for us the experience of the man who had been delivered from that demonic possession. He wanted to follow Jesus, just like the rich young ruler, just like the other man who wanted to bury his father. So this man wants to follow Jesus. And instead of saying to this man anything like what he had said to those previous accounts, he says something very different. He says, no, you can't follow me. He doesn't challenge him with 
the commitment issue. He doesn't challenge him with the obedience issue. He just says, no, you can't go with me. Now, there may be a couple of reasons for that. And I would submit that this particular series of events that we've been looking at occurred in what is known as the deck. Well, not the Decalogue, it's the Decapolis there. That's the word, Decapolis. It's an area that was primarily Gentile, Greek-speaking Gentile territory. The Decapolis was a series of ten cities on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. And it's very likely that this individual himself and also the townspeople who came to Jesus were not Jews at all. They were probably Gentiles. And we say that because it was against the law for any God-fearing Jew to be anything, have anything to do with raising of pigs or even being in the presence of pigs. They were considered unclean animals. They would be defiled religiously under the Mosaic law if they were to come into contact with a pig or eat the flesh of pigs. God forbid that they would do that. So I suggest to you that these were probably Gentiles and not Jews. And I say that also because of what Jesus himself had said. And it may answer to the question, why didn't he allow this man to follow him? Because Jesus said, I have come to the house of Israel. His purpose for coming at that time was to minister to the nation of the Jews. Now, he did minister to certain Gentiles. We already saw that. He healed the servant of a Gentile man who happened to be a centurion of the Roman army. And this man, if he was indeed a Gentile, was also healed. There is also record in the Gospels of Jesus going outside of the territory of the Galilee region and healing, for instance, the Syrophoenician mother of a young girl. And so... Jesus didn't neglect any of those who came to him who wanted to be healed, whether they were Jew or Gentile. But he didn't want a Gentile to be in the mix of those who were committed to following him because his ministry, again, by his own words, was to the Jews alone. So it's very likely that that could explain why he said, no, you can't come. But take note of what took place. Jesus had said, no, you can't come with me, but what I want you to do is tell everybody you know what God has done for you. And the man obligated himself to doing just that. That's what Luke records for us that Matthew does not. He says, this man went throughout all of those areas where he lived, where he was familiar, and he told the whole city what great things Jesus did for him. That's wonderful. He was the first, if he was a Gentile, the first Gentile evangelist. He was committed to telling people. So he may not have been able to follow Jesus, but he certainly talked about it. And that's a wonderful thing. That's something that we all need to keep in mind and think about very seriously. You know, we have been given as Gentiles the privilege of not only following Jesus, but also proclaiming what Jesus has done for us. And that's something that most of us fall somewhat short of in doing that which he has requested of this man. But don't think that it's only of this one that he makes that request. It's a request that is made to everyone who believes. Every one of us has the challenge before us to do what this man did. To proclaim to anyone who would hear what Jesus has done for you and for me, for all who believe. He says, believe and do. Basically, those are the two things that we need to really focus on. First of all, we need to believe. And secondly, we need to do. James tells us that it's not just faith alone. But you need to do the Word of God. Not just hear the Word of God, but do the Word of God. Now, that doesn't mean that doing the Word of God, doing good works, doing good deeds, doesn't qualify you for heaven. Don't make that mistake, people. It is not the requirement of salvation that you do good works. Salvation is a free gift. 
you need first of all to understand that is all that God's Word says regarding how to be saved through faith. Faith in Christ. By grace, through faith, you are saved, Paul tells us. That not of yourself, lest any man should boast. So if I'm going to be trying to convince people I'm saved because I've done many, many good deeds on behalf of Jesus, on behalf of God, on behalf of the church, that doesn't get you entrance into the kingdom, my friend. So what is it that we are supposed to do and why? We're supposed to do good works, yes. Why? For our own benefit. Paul goes on to say in that same passage that I began to quote, it's Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, that we are saved by grace through faith, or through grace by faith. And it's not of ourselves, as any man should boast. It's a gift of God. And then he goes on to say, For it is God who works in you His perfect will. Paul tells us elsewhere that we are to work out our own salvation in fear and trembling. Well, there, we're supposed to do good works, aren't we? Well, what's the purpose of that? Jesus, Paul, tells us. Paul tells us what the purpose of that working out our salvation in fear and trembling is for. Again, it's God who works in you, His perfect will. So read those passages carefully. It's not the means of salvation. Works is for reward. Works is because you want to do something for God because you know what God has done for you. It's an expression of your appreciation, your love for Him. Doing good works is part of what we are to be doing. And faithfully obligating ourselves to seek to know God's will for us so that we can go and do those things that God has appointed for us to do. Do and believe. Believe and do. Chapter 9 continues what I began to talk with you about earlier. The idea of the fact that Jesus is Lord over all. He has power over everything. We've examined that. In this passage that we're looking at this morning, we see that He has power over something of great importance to all of us. Power over sin. Read on with me. In chapter 9, verse 1, it says, So he, Jesus, got into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own city. Then, behold, they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven you. He has power over sins. Matthew records it for us here. Jesus spoke those words to this poor paralytic. Now, Matthew doesn't tell us enough detail about the situation, the circumstances, so I want to go to another place in Scripture that does. And this time, we're turning to Mark's Gospel, chapter 2. So turn there with me, Mark chapter 2, beginning with verse 1, where Mark tells us, the details given here. And again, he entered Capernaum after some days, and it was heard that he was in the house. Now, apparently, in Capernaum, that's where Jesus has made his place of operation, if you will, his home office. Maybe Peter's home. No real certainty about that, but he was in Peter's home when he healed Peter's mother-in-law, you remember. But here he's back in Capernaum. Matthew doesn't give us the name of the place, but Mark does. And he's there, and he's in somebody's house. Again, probably Peter's house. It says in verse 2, Immediately many gathered together so that there was no longer room to receive them, not even near the door. And he preached the word to them. So picture this. The house is completely full of people. There's not even any room to get in through the door. They're so packed with a number of people that were there listening to him preach the Word. I love that. Jesus loved to preach the Word of God. And they all wanted to hear what he had to say. So there's a large crowd that had gathered in that house. But then, in verse 3 it tells us, 
they came to him, bringing a paralytic who was carried by four men. So this paralytic, a man obviously unable to walk, is lying on his bed, and these four men are carrying him along, one at each corner of the bed. And they realize, we can't get in to see Jesus through the door. It's not able, they're not able to because there's so many people there. It's too much of a large crowd, but they've come all this way because they want one thing. They want to see Jesus heal this poor man. Good friends. They were doing this for his sake. They wanted him to be well like they were. They wanted to see him able to walk like they could walk. But he couldn't. He was a paralytic for how many years or months or whatever caused that paralysis? We don't know. Paralysis, I should say. But, but he was paralyzed. He was not able to walk. In some of your translations, it says he was sick of the palsy. It just means simply that his joints were not functioning. Must have been in great pain, perhaps. And he's lying on this paralytic bed. For how long? We don't, we're not told. But these men are faithful friends. And they know that Jesus has been healing many people. And they think perhaps Jesus would heal their dear friend. So they bring him. Now they've got an issue though. They can't get in to see Jesus. So in verse 4 it says, And when they could not come near him because of the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he was. So when they had broken through, they let down the bed on which the paralytic was lying. Again, picture this. In that time, the typical home was a single-story home with a flat roof, and they generally would use the roof for evening rests. It was cooler in the evening for them, and they would go up onto the roof, and they would relax in the coolness of the evening air. And that would be the best way for them to enjoy uh, this temperature change between the heat of the day and the coolness of the evening hours. So you could sit on the roof or walk on the roof, and it was safe. They built it in such a way that they would hold the weight of any number of people on their roofs. Now, this group of men have come and they've climbed up onto the roof, probably from an outside stairway, and they set the paralytic down and they immediately beginning, begin removing tiles. And they open up an, a space large enough to let this man down. They calculated from what they heard inside. They perhaps could even see Jesus when they were down below. They realized, well, he's got to be just about here. Open up the roof. Let the man down on ropes. That's amazing. And if it was Peter's house, I can just imagine Peter's response. Or any owner. What are you doing to my roof? Can you imagine that? Anybody that you don't know comes along and starts tearing your roof apart. What are you going to say? What are you going to think? But Jesus was there. And I'm convinced that Jesus probably very quickly calmed the excitement of this owner, whoever it might have been, and said, don't worry. There's a purpose in all of this. Now, that's, again, speculation. But I'm convinced that Jesus was in control of this situation. They let him down. It says in verse 5 of Mark's Gospel, chapter 2, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven you. So now we're seeing Mark agreeing with what Matthew had said. He says, Son, your sins are forgiven you. It's interesting that he said, Son. We're not told how old this man was. Perhaps he was younger than Jesus, perhaps not. But the word that is used in the Greek is paideon, which is a name for a child. It's more likely that they understood it. Child, your sins are forgiven. Fatherly compassion from the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that opened some eyes in that little gathering. Opened some ears to what was going on. Jesus, a man... Yes, a teacher, a man, yes, a healer, a man said, your sins are forgiven you. Do you not know, Jesus, that that is blasphemy? For you to say your sins are forgiven, that belongs to God and God alone. You have no right to say that to this man. What are you doing, Jesus? 
Now, there were only a few who thought that. And that's what Matthew records for us. It says in verse 3, back in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 9, it says, And it's once some of the scribes within themselves, this man blasphemes. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? This man blasphemes. They thought that this was an absolute abomination to God the Father to proclaim that you have some authority to do what only God can do was a blasphemous statement as far as they're concerned. Remember, this is the people who are thinking these things in their hearts were scribes. They were the men who copied the Word of God. They knew what God's Word said. And it is true that God's Word does declare that forgiveness of sins belongs to God alone. He alone forgives sins. No other. He has that authority. No other. And for them to hear those words by Jesus, your sins are forgiven you, they said, this is not right. But they didn't vocalize this objection. They thought about it in their minds. And if they might have glanced at one another and, and perhaps looked at one another in amazement. Stricken by what Jesus was saying, they might have expressed that, but they didn't vocalize that. Jesus, though, it tells us, knew what was in their hearts. And friends, I want you to understand this. He knows what's in your heart too and mine. The men and I have just completed a series of teachings at our men's breakfasts on the seven churches of the book of Revelation. Every one of those seven letters that Jesus records through the Apostle John in the book of Revelations begins with the phrase, I know your works. He's aware. You can't hide a thing. Don't think that you can do anything or say anything or think anything that He isn't already fully aware of. Jesus is God and God's Word tells us that He knows our very thoughts. Jesus knew the thoughts of these men. Yes, He's only a man if He is not truly God. And that's the thing that they needed to come to grips with. Everyone needs to come to grips with that. Is He truly God or is He just a man? If He's just a man, then He has indeed blasphemed. He's put Himself into a position that challenges them to think about who it is that is seated with them. And it challenges all of us also as we read these words together because Jesus asked the question, why do you think evil in your hearts? In verse 5, He puts this challenge before them. Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say, arise and walk? So here's the challenge. Jesus says, you've got these two things that you need to consider. I've just said your sins are forgiven. Is it harder for me to say your sins are forgiven? Or is it harder for me to say, rise up and walk? Technically, just the saying of either of those two things doesn't prove anything. But the completion of something that is observable does give credence to both of those statements being true if Jesus has said them of Himself. What he's saying is, if you think that saying your sins are forgiven or saying rise up and walk is difficult to comprehend, it is. Both of those are difficult to comprehend. Can anyone heal? Well, not just anyone. But if a man who says your sins are forgiven, is also able to heal the paralytic, the healing gives credence to what he said about forgiveness of sins. That's the point that Jesus is now here making. He says, look, if it is more difficult one way or the other, then you tell me, which one is it? Which is more difficult for me to say? And they didn't really have an answer. He goes on in verse 6 because they did not answer, and he says, but so that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, Arise, 
take up your bed and go to your house. He proved the one by doing the other. He said, what's more difficult? They couldn't answer. So he showed them, I can do this, therefore you must realize that I also have the authority to say this. Clear-cut truth that they could not deny. It's here, though, the beginning of the opposition against Jesus begins. In this setting, we find that these who are objecting to what Jesus has just said are not convinced that he is God. They're not willing to follow Jesus just because this man was healed. They are set in their minds. This man we will have nothing to do with. Regardless of what we've seen him do, there's got to be an explanation. We will not accept him. And that was their mindset. And they stuck with it. Verse 7 says, Then he rose and departed to his house. Now when the multitude saw it, they marveled and glorified God who had given such power to men. The majority of people who had witnessed this realized this is not just a man. But the scribes would not accept it. And we'll see more of that as we read further into the Gospel account that the scribes and the Pharisees are now plotting to get him. They want to get rid of him. He's a threat to their business. He's a threat to their income. They're jealous. He's a threat to their well-being, the respect that they had from all of the people who thought they were the ones who had everything together with regard to the worship of God. Yet this man comes along and contradicts pretty much everything that they've been saying of the traditions that they have been enforcing upon all of the people which weren't from the Word of God, by the way. They were just traditions of men. We'll see more of that as we move further into the study of Mark's and um, rather Matthew's gospel. But now Matthew changes course again, and this time he'll go into some degree of detail, but not much, about his own experience. Matthew, the writer of this gospel, was one of the twelve apostles. In the other Gospel records, Luke and Mark in particular, his name is referred to as Levi. The implication in that is that Levi was his birth name, given to him by his parents. And since the name Levi is associated with the tribe of Levi, one of the twelve tribes of Israel, it is commonly accepted by most scholars that Matthew Levi was a Levitical Descendant, a descendant of the man known as Levi, one of the twelve tribes, tribal leaders in the days of Moses. If that's the case, Matthew had a certain advantage over the other apostles. He would have been raised up as a Levitical child in the ways of worship, in the ways of temple maintenance, in the ways of the Word of God. Well, well versed. That's perhaps one of the reasons why we can look at Matthew's gospel and realize he knew an awful lot of scripture. That explains perhaps why he was so familiar with the word of God, because he was a Levitical child. But Matthew here only talks about the fact that Jesus came to this man Matthew's house. And he unfolds this portion of the story that we'll read here, beginning with verse 7. He arose and departed to his house. In verse 8, they marveled and glorified God who had given such power to men. And in verse 9, he tells his own story. As Jesus passed out on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. So he rose and followed him. Matthew was a tax collector. In some of their translations, Matthew was known as a publican. Tax collectors or publicans were hated by the Jews. Why? Because they themselves were Jews hired by Roman authorities 
to collect taxes from the Jews for the Romans. They were despised by their fellow Jews, primarily because the majority of them ripped everybody off. It was the only means of income for a tax collector to collect the appropriate amount of taxes for Rome, but also to add a little bit of extra on top of the required tax that they could take for themselves. And many tax collectors became very, very wealthy. It's very likely that Matthew was one of the hated men. Not only was he a tax collector, but it tells us he was seated in the office. That means that he had authority over some of the other publicans that were with him, collecting those taxes. He may have been either one of or the most important of those tax gatherers in the city of Capernaum. He's outside the city because they didn't really want the tax collectors to be in the community close by. But Jesus is walking by this tax office and he sees this individual seated at this post. And he simply looks into this man's eyes and he said, Follow me. Follow me. Words have meaning. When Jesus said to Matthew, follow me, he expected the same from him as he did the rich ruler. He expected the same from him as the man who said, I want to first bury my father. He expected the same as the man of the Gadarenes who wanted to follow Jesus, but Jesus said, no, you can't do that. Here, Jesus invites this one to follow him. And in saying that, Jesus is expecting full obedience, full commitment from this individual. Now, we're not told by Matthew or even the other gospel writers, did Matthew already know about Jesus? What did he know? Certainly, he must have heard rumors. This man is healing everybody around him. He must have been aware. Did he ever listen to Jesus' teachings? Had he ever been a part of the crowd, the disciples who were in a distance listening to the Sermon on the Mount? Had he heard the Beatitudes? Had he heard Jesus' words saying, you must be perfect even as your Father is perfect? Had he heard the words of Jesus when Jesus said, your righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees if you were to enter into the kingdom? Perhaps... We're not told. But we are told this. Jesus said two words, follow me. And Matthew got up from that place and immediately began to follow Jesus. Now that's commitment. How can I say that for sure? Because if he left his station as a tax collector, there's no way that he's ever going to be able to get back into that same place of power that he once had as a tax collector. He gave up everything. Everything. That's commitment. Now James and John, Peter and Andrew, they gave up their fishing career. But I can sense in the giving up of those trades, the possibility exists that they could have said, yeah, I'll try it. And if it doesn't work out, I can go back to fishing. That may not have passed their minds, but that is a possibility. But Matthew, on the other hand, could never ever say that. Yeah, I'll try it for now. And if it doesn't work, I can't go back to what I was doing. I'm committed. I am doing this because he said, follow me. And the words coming out of his mouth were so powerful, so meaningful, so touched my heart, Matthew says, I will follow you to the death. That's commitment. That's what Jesus is looking for. Not half-heartedness. Not maybe later. Not I'll try it now. But do it with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Follow me, Jesus says. And he rose and followed him. That's powerful. Verse 10 says, Now it happened as Jesus sat at the table in the house. Now, again, Matthew is a little bit shy about perhaps the fact that this is his house 
where this gathering took place. Mark tells us that in his gospel. But Matthew says he's now in the house. And behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. Many tax gatherers and sinners. Matthew knew a bunch of them, apparently, and he must have invited them. He apparently invited Jesus to come to his house for a meal. And Jesus accepted the invitation because Jesus loved to eat with tax collectors and sinners. Just like you and me. That was the problem that the Pharisees and scribes had, by the way, that he ate with sinners, tax collectors, harlots, drunkards. All of those were represented in Matthew's house at this particular time. And Jesus said, yeah, I'll come. I'll break bread with you. Interesting to note, by the way, that in Jewish custom, you sit at a table to eat bread. You're actually reclined at not a table like we we sit in, but more or less elevated table about knee high, and you kind of lean back on your, your one shoulder, and you're resting comfortably at the side of the table. And before you, there are set trays of bread and sop or some kind of sauce that was available to dip your bread into. It was a common meal. In other words, each of them seated around that table would take a piece of that bread and rip it off from the loaf, pass it on to the next person, and they would take that bread, dip it into the sauce or sop, and eat of it. And then the next person would be doing the same thing. Some of us would be very reluctant to do that these days, I think it's important to wash your hands before you eat your meal. But I do that, and when I do sit down at the table, I don't want somebody taking stuff off of my plate and eating that along with me, but that's really what they were doing, people. They were just sharing the meal together. And in the sharing of that meal, it had a symbolic purpose. The sharing of that bread together in a common meal made them to be one with one another. A communion. A united sense that I'm your friend. You're my friend. It's more than that. We're connected in this ritual of breaking bread together. We are one in this breaking of bread. And it was a union that was represented in that meal. Matthew invites tax collectors, sinners, of all kinds, to that table. Jesus is there, and he's eating with them. And verse 12 says, and when Jesus, or rather, verse 11 says, when the Pharisees saw it, now they weren't at the table, but they could see what was going on inside. And there were some of the disciples who were standing outside with them. And so the Pharisees saw it, verse 11, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard that, again, he didn't have to hear it audibly. Likely that he did. They probably said it loud enough for him to hear. But in any case, Jesus responds to their accusations this way. Verse 12 says, When Jesus heard that, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now we could park here for a while, but I don't want to belabor the point. I just want to share these last thoughts with you before we go our separate ways. Jesus is here saying, I didn't come for the righteous. Who are the righteous? The ones who thought they were righteous. The ones who believed themselves to be holy men of God. The ones who offered up the sacrifices that were required by the law. The ones who obeyed every dot and tittle of the law. The ones who believed themselves to be perfect in the sight of God with regard to their obedience to the commands of Moses. They knew the law. They knew the traditions of men. And they believed themselves to be perfect in all that they did. But what they forgot is that what they were looking at was not the spirit of the law, but the letter of the law. Paul the Apostle said, I'm a Pharisee, or I was, 
of the Pharisees. He said, look, as to the law, I was perfect. So he thought. But then he began to realize after his conversion that he really did not keep all the law. For he said, all of those commandments of God, I did except the last one. Thou shalt not covet. And when Paul realized that command of God carried the weight of internalizing your own thoughts, your character, and exposing it before God, Paul said, that command slew me. I realized I can't say I've completely been obedient to that command. And when you're not obedient to any of the commands, even one of the commands, and you obey all the rest, that cancels everything out, people. You are obedient in every but one. And if you fail in that one, then you failed in them all, James tells us. That was what Paul realized, and that's what these righteous souls did not realize. They consider themselves to be righteous. Therefore, Jesus said, you think yourself to be righteous? Well, you don't need a physician then, do you? Righteousness was the opposite of sickness in the eyes of the Jews. What Jesus was saying, the physician comes to heal the sick. Those who are in need of healing are obviously sick and If they are sinners, then there is sickness. And He has come to heal that sickness, that sin begins to infiltrate the heart of anyone who simply believes in the fact that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and there is none who have done any good, none not one, according to the psalmist, every one of us, every one of us is without excuse. There is none who does good, no, not one. We're all unrighteous. We're all sick in our sin. But the physician, the great physician, has come to heal that sickness. That's what he's saying to these men. If you're righteous, you have no need of a physician. But if you're sick, you'd better go to the doctor. And he is the one and only one who has the cure. And lastly, in verse 13, he reminded them, they don't know, really, they don't know what God's Word says. And he reminds them of this. He says, go and learn what this means. That was a common rabbinical phrase to rabbi's disciples. The rabbi would disclose something of the truth of God's Word. And then the rabbi would typically tell his students, go and learn what this means. In other words, apply it. Not only are you to hear it, but absorb it. Make good use of what you have heard in your own life. Make sure that you appropriate these words to yourselves. And that's what Jesus is telling them. And he's quoting Hosea 6.6. He says, go and learn what this says. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Simple words. God desires mercy and not sacrifice. Oh, sacrifice was important to the Jews. But what was of greater importance is mercy. God wanted to extend His mercy to all of mankind. But God also wanted His people to extend mercy to others. And they were not doing that. They were relying on their willingness to observe all of the requirements of the sacrificial offerings and thinking themselves to be perfect before God. But the sin had corrupted them. And Jesus recognized that. He saw that they were not truly righteous. They did not see that. They had closed their own eyes. And people, there are many in the world today who are still in that same place of blindness. We talked last time about, oh Lord, open our eyes. And I believe that that is so very, very important for anyone in this present hour, in this time in which we live. Many people have their eyes closed to the truth of God's Word. Many people will not open their eyes to see what is going on around us. And many people are going to miss this wonderful truth 
because they will not, they choose not to see the great physician has come. And he is here still. And he's calling out to all, still, open your eyes to see. I want you to be whole. I want you to be well, spiritually speaking. Oh, we're all fairly healthy physically. Hopefully that's the case. But he's not talking about physical wellness here. He's talking about the need for you to look inwardly and to see the corruption, to see the dark sin in your life and in mine that needs to be dealt with. He alone is a physician who can do the surgery that is necessary through His Word. The Word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword, able to cut asunder, down to the very bone and marrow. That's what we all need, that kind of surgery. He tells us in another place, Paul the Apostle says, look, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty for the pulling down of strongholds. What's he referring to? Those things that keep us from serving the Lord God Almighty. Those are the strongholds, and the Word of God is able to spread apart. And dig in to the very heart of your soul and rip out of that spiritual condition that which provides nothing more than death. He wants you to be set free from that. He wants you to be healed from such things. And the only way is through Christ alone, through His finished work on the cross, through the salvation that He alone gives by faith. By faith. It's a gift of God. It's not of yourself. He did not come, He said, to call the righteous. They're not going to come. Those who think themselves to be perfect, they're not going to turn. But sinners to repentance. Those are the ones who will be set free. My prayer for all of us here today is that we have been indeed set free by His Word. By His Word. Jesus said, the truth will set you free. You want to be free from the burden of sin. You want the chains that you have been so burdened by to be taken off of your shoulders. That can only come in one way. It's through Christ's work on the cross. His willingness to do the work of a physician in your heart and mind and soul. He's still able to do that same thing today and He wants to for each one of us. So let it be so in each heart today.